Welcome to The Point. I'm Mindy Todd. Today, we discuss COVID-19, where we've been, where we are now, and what's ahead. Dr. Paul Offit is one of the world's top virologists. He's a national and international authority on COVID-19 and is a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. His book is Tell Me When It's Over, an expert's guide to deciphering COVID myths and navigating our post-pandemic world. Welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks for asking me. So debate continues to this day about the origins of this virus and whether it was a product of nature or created in a lab. But you write, the evidence is clear. This came from bats in so-called wet markets. Yeah, the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, you, you have um, SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, genetic uh, material that has now been detected in the Western section of the Hunan wholesale seafood market. It was detected in, in animals, including raccoon dogs. It was detected in the cages in which those animals uh, lived. It was detected in the materials that were used to sacrifice those animals or brush those animals. And, and all the original cases started in that area and then spread outward. I mean, to, to, to think of this as a controversy is to know that it's certainly not a scientific controversy. It is at most a cultural controversy. Yeah. Conspiracy theories abound, though. So tell us a little bit about how these conspiracy theories get started. Well, it, it's the conspiracy theories are attractive because they take sometimes difficult situations and make them easily understood. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to believe that that these things, when they happen, are because there are dark and evil forces working behind the scenes against us? So in this case, if you say the lab leak theory, here it is, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is certainly in the, in the city where this virus began. They're the problem. They're what did it. And they did it because we provided money to them to study this virus. And, and therefore they, because they're evil, you know, created these this strain which then you know was leashed this awful pandemic upon the world whereas it was just an animal to human spillover event just like SARS-1 which occurred in 2002 just like MERS which occurred in 2012 and just like many of the different pathogens that affect us come originally from animals yeah so when where or when did uh, Americans start to lose faith with the FDA um I think that um, it, it was gradual. The, the, uh, the, the, the first place, I think, was in April of 2020, when we didn't have anything. I mean, we had thousands of people dying a day from SARS-CoV-2. We didn't have antivirals. We didn't have monoclonal antibodies. We didn't have vaccines, all of which came at the end of 2020. Um, the FDA approved, through emergency use authorization, hydroxychloroquine, which was an anti-malarial drug um, that had never been shown to either treat or prevent COVID. But there was a lot of arm twisting from the, the executive branch, from, from uh, former President Trump, to, to do this, to, to have a magic medicine, something that would make the, all this awful disease go away. And so um, the, the federal government bought 29 million doses of hydroxychloroquine and the FDA approved it for about three months. And then when the studies came out, which were very quick and very clear, it was it was clear that this, this product, hydroxychloroquine, didn't treat or didn't prevent this disease. And so they withdrew their emergency use authorization. And that spilled over to vaccines. I mean, I was on on the committee of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, and we were scared. We, the committee members, were scared that the Trump administration wasn't going to allow these clinical trials to go to completion. 
so that we could have all the safety data we needed because they saw that as something that would be valuable to what was going to be a November 2020 election. Mm -hmm. And so that's built over there. But I think that's where the FDA started to lose some credibility. So what's involved with an emergency approval like that? What do you look at if you don't have all the, you know, clinical trials or to, to know that it's working yet? How, how do they base that decision? That's a good question. So, so when we met on December um, uh, um, 17th or December 10th to discuss Pfizer's vaccine or December 17th to discuss Moderna's vaccine, um, we were going to give this not a licensure, but an emergency use approval. Um, the difference is this. The, the two trials, one was a 40,000-person trial for Pfizer, another was a 30,000-person trial for Moderna. Those are the size of any typical adult or pediatric vaccine trial. So the size of the trials were no different. It was a placebo-controlled trial. That was no different. Um, the data that you had was really no different than you would have for licensure. Um, the only difference is that when you license a product, you not, don't only license the product, you also license the building in which the product is made and the procedures by which the product is produced. And usually what happens is you look at these so-called phase three trials and then over 10 months, the FDA licenses the building and licenses every aspect of the procedure. This happened actually during the, the process of making these vaccines. So, so the licensure process, if you will, happened during that uh, uh, whatever 11 month mm -hmm. period. So it really functionally was no different than, than I, this emergency use authorization functionally was really no different than licensure in terms of the product. It was the exact same product. So you have this, uh, as you're saying, we, we didn't have anything. People are dying and you get this all of a sudden, oh, this miracle drug, that which doesn't work, right? So three months later. That, so we, But we also, at that same time, had misinformation coming from the White House. I'm thinking, President Trump, bleach will work. I mean, there was, Lysol actually had to put out some statement, please don't drink Lysol. That was a sad day, I think, when when uh, former President Trump stood up and, and, and sort of said that bleach could work. Because, you know, certainly if you have SARS-CoV-2 virus, for example, on a surface and you want to eliminate that virus, bleach, if you wipe off the surface, will eliminate that virus. But it doesn't work the same way if you drink, for example, the bleach. And so that was the assumption that couldn't it be taken internally, he said, as he looked at Deborah Burke. So I think looked down at the floor and was hoping that the floor would open up so that she could disappear. Um, so, so he also said the UV light if taken internally, could also work because UV light does work if in terms of eliminating that virus on a surface, but it doesn't work inside you. Uh, you know, we're exposed to UV light all the time when, we, when we're out in the sun, but that doesn't, uh, we don't sunburn our lungs. You know, you can't, it doesn't work that way. He also recommended oleander leaves, and it was just a sad day, I think, for the executive branch and for, frankly, Health and Human Services, and that Alex Azar could have stood up to this, or Deborah Merckx could have stood up to this and said, this is nuts, because you're right, life's actually had to issue an alert not to drink their product because there were people who were getting poisoned from drinking it. Oh, crazy. So um, talk a little bit about when you're looking at every vaccine has a side effect, right? There's always something. So talk a little bit about side effects of vaccines and, and what goes into that whole process. Right. So, so there are the natural effects of, of developing an immune response. I mean, when you develop an immune response, you develop have proteins, so-called immunological proteins like interferons or interleukins, which have effects. They can cause fever or muscle ache or joint ache or, or headache. Those are just sort of products of your immune system. And then there are these adverse events that can occur following a vaccine. And, and if you look at the, the uh, two mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna's, the adverse effect, which we didn't know about 
because the trials that had been done weren't big enough to pick it up, uh, was myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle. That only became apparent when hundreds of thousands of people were vaccinated as compared to tens of thousands, which is why being on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee was so tough. You knew that when you were looking at those two trials, which in terms of vaccinated people involved 35,000 people, you were about to make a recommendation for hundreds of millions of people, and you knew there was going to be another shoe that dropped, because that's always true. Every medical innovation at some point has always been associated with some human cost. If, if there's a positive effect, there's invariably a negative effect. The only question was how rare and how bad. And we learned about myocarditis then over the, the months after that vaccine that was given to hundreds of millions of people. And same for Johnson & Johnson's vectored virus vaccine, which caused a, a clotting problem, including clotting that could occur in the brain, which could be fatal, and ultimately drove that vaccine off the market in May of last year. Yeah. Interesting. When you look back to on the history of vaccines and as you're saying, some of the detrimental things that happened along the way um, that I guess make people a little nervous. Right. When something new comes along. I think you should reasonably be skeptical of anything you put in your body, including biologicals like vaccines. But it's always a matter of relative risk. I mean, so so what did you know? What we knew in December of 2020 was that in these trials of 40,000 or 30,000, the vaccine was highly effective, 95 percent effective at preventing severe disease. You knew that it, that it was safe as far as you knew in, in tens of thousands of people, but you didn't know it was absolutely safe. I mean, that was going to be found out later. And so, but but a choice not to get a vaccine was not a risk-free choice. It was just a choice to take a, a different risk. And I think we now know a more serious risk. Those who chose not to get a vaccine in 2021 were 12 times more likely to be hospitalized than those who chose to get a vaccine. So the right choice at that time was to get vaccinated. Yeah. One of the things um, about science, you know, we, we're looking for answers to questions and sometimes we get an answer and then it creates three more questions, right? That's uh, the nature of science. So as we're going through COVID, there are, we learn things along the way. And it, I think a lot of people get confused with that. They think, oh, now they're telling us something different. You know, it's like like there was, you know, like like they didn't quite understand how, I guess, science works, right? As we learn things, we adjust the policies and recommendations, right? Right. I think that um, is disconcerting. I think the fluidity of the acquisition of scientific knowledge is disconcerting. I think if you ask people, do you think we're going to know uh, more about science and medicine 50 years from now than we know now, I think everybody would say yes. But when it comes to your disease, or in this case, our pandemic, they want to believe you know everything you need to know. And there is not a person that commented on this virus or this vaccine in, in, in the three plus years that we've had this, this vaccine available that has been right uh, 100% of the time. We've all been wrong. We have all said at least one thing that was wrong during the last few years, it, me included. I think that doesn't mean that everything that any of us say from then on should just be discarded. It just means that we learn as we go. And the fluidity of that, the fluidity of acquisition of scientific knowledge is upsetting to people, which is why they're drawn to gurus. I mean, gurus who just say, state something, this is absolutely true, whether it's Deepak Chopra or Mehmet Oz or Andrew Wakefield, who believe that MMR vaccine causes autism. Those people are more fixed in their beliefs and we're more comfortable with that because they're, they're, they're an absolute. It's like, I don't know if you ever saw Star Trek, you know, the, the television show Star Trek, but there, Bones McCoy was the chief medical officer and he had this thing that he would hold called a tri 
tricorder. And if you had signs or symptoms of a particular disease, he would take that tricorder and he would scan you up and down. And then he would look at the readout and that's what you had. And that's very reassuring. I only wish we had something yeah. like that because uh, then we could be believed that, that medicine and medical knowledge was absolute when it's not. Just thinking about poor um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who stood with the science through this and was villainized for that. I mean, I mean, I, I was amazed at how, you know, the, the just the vitriol that was in his direction, the death threats and things. And here's a guy who's trying to help us. Right. Uh, and th thank goodness for Dr. Anthony Fauci. I am glad we had him. This country was, it, he was a godsend to us in the sense that he was, he was a brilliant scientist who also had the capacity to explain science without using scientific jargon. I think he made it very clear. He wasn't always right uh, because none of us were always right. And, and also because in 2021, especially, and, and to some extent in 2022, we, sort of public health, it was like public, public health above all. Um, we, we had thousands of people dying every day. Um, and certainly in 2020, when we didn't have antivirals or monoclonals or vaccines, all we could do was limit human to human contact. So we shuttered schools, we closed businesses, we restricted travel, we isolated, we quarantined, we shut down this economy. And, and people um, were angry about that. I think in many ways we leaned into this libertarian left hook of sort of uh, uh, limiting uh, personal freedoms, bodily autonomy, and people really, really got angry at that. And he became a focus of that anger. It's unfortunate, but he's, 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 a, he's a brave man. He stood up and kept taking the hits, uh, so good for him. But I, I certainly have known Dr. Fauci for more than 30 years, and we were lucky to have him in this pandemic. We're talking about COVID-19 this hour with Dr. Paul Offit. His book is Tell Me When It's Over, An Expert's Guide to Deciphering COVID Myths and Navigating Our Post-Pandemic World. 866-999-4626 is our number. Our email address is thepoint at capeandislands.org. And we'll talk more after a quick break. You're listening to The Point. We are discussing COVID-19 this morning with Dr. Paul Offit, who's one of the world's top virologists and an authority on COVID-19. His book is Tell Me When It's Over, An Expert's Guide to Deciphering COVID Myths and Navigating Our Post-Pandemic World. 866-999-4626 is our number. Our email address, thepoint at capeandislands.org. We've got an email from Amy who says, Massachusetts allows a religious ex exemption for school children to attend public schools without being vaccinated. I don't know of any organized religion that has any rules around vaccinations, much less rules about not getting vaccinated. Yet there are many people who use this exemption and send their children into school without being vaccinated. What are your thoughts? That's a really good point. I mean, I think you would argue that if religions teach us nothing, they certainly teach us to care about our family, to care about um, those who, who, are, who are around us, to care about society. And, and a choice not to vaccinate your child is to put, put a choice to put your child at unnecessary risk and to put those who come in contact with them at unnecessary risk. So to me, it seems like a profoundly unreligious act. Certainly vaccines weren't invented until the late 1700s, which was the smallpox vaccine. So the major texts of, the, of the, the Jewish religion or the Christian religions, Catholic religions, are all written well before that. There, there is one text, however, uh, that was uh, a, a science and health with the key to scriptures is um, is Christian science. So, so Christian science was created in the in the 1800s after the smallpox vaccine was uh, invented, and it does, there is a, there is a statement in that in that text that talks about how um, that basically eschews uh, the the importance of getting vaccines. That that you know smallpox. If you want to get rid of smallpox, you go to prayer. 
um, or you want to avoid smallpox, you pray um, that vaccines were were uh, were discouraged. And so you could argue that is the one text, the one religion that says that one shouldn't get vaccinated it would be Christian science. Mm. Talk a little bit about the the anti-vax movement history. This is interesting. Right. It's not. Um, well, certainly the anti-vaccine movement has been around since the first vaccine. I mean, the anti-vaccination league was created in the early 1800s associated with the, the smallpox vaccine. And it's pretty much been the same ever since, which is that, that don't force me to get a biological injected into my body. I don't want to do that. That should be my choice, not the government's. And so that was the, the birth of this. And um, and historically, over time, there's really never been a politics of the anti-vaccine movement. On the left, it was sort of all things natural. I don't want to be injected with something that has manufacturing residuals or preservatives or buffering agents or stabilizing agents or anything with a chemical name. And for example, the outbreak in Southern California of measles around 2014 was in a heavily democratic era area that started in sort of the Disneyland area and then spread to 25 other states and involved a couple hundred people. That was a, a left-leaning, if you will, outbreak. And on the right, it was what you see now, which is this sort of libertarian government off me about my back. Don't tell me what to do. But this pandemic has been largely the, a right wing projection phenomenon. I mean, you're much more likely to have gotten a vaccine if you vote a Democrat than if you voted Republican. You were much more likely to be hospitalized and die if you lived in a sort of a heavily red area as compared to a heavily blue area. There, there has never been an infectious disease in our history where you were more likely to suffer and die based on your political affiliations until now. Mm -hmm. So that has swung wildly to the right and I'm not sure exactly why. I think in part it's because of this libertarian notion of, of freedom, of, of don't let the federal government tell me what to do, has become sort of uh, paramount now during the, the last few years. You talk about leaders in the anti-vax movement, and the one who stands out is Robert Malone, who I had never heard of before reading your book. So Robert Malone is an interesting character. He is, a, I think, in many ways, a brilliant scientist. He published uh, two important papers in the late 1980s showing that you could take messenger RNA, which is how we make the current uh, Pfizer-Moderna uh, COVID vaccines, that you could put it into cells. You could, could that, that messenger RNA then would be translated into a protein. He proved that in a laboratory dish. He proved it in mice. And in many ways, it served as a foundation for what became now our mRNA vaccines. Um, Nonetheless, he's become in many ways an, an anti-vaccine activist and, and puts out information that vaccines are doing far more harm than good. And he has a platform because of his, uh, his early work and because he is really in many ways a very smart scientist who can translate science uh, into easily understood uh, messages for the community. Um, he's, he's unusual in, in that sense. And yeah, adds to the confusion, right? Because here you have this man of science telling you something different than the rest of the science is telling you. And you can see where people get confused. No, I think you can ultimately get a scientist to say anything, I am sad to say. You <laughs> yeah. have Marty Macri, for example, who uh, from Hopkins getting up in front of Congress and saying, you know, the fact that this was a lab leak was a no-brainer. You have Peter McCullough, who's a cardiologist, who gets out there and says, and I think on Joe Rogan's show, you can't get uh, COVID uh, more than once, which mm -hmm. I'm sure is enormously reassuring yeah. to people who've had it more than once. Um, so you can get, you know, people yeah. who are smart and well-educated and have degrees 
to say anything, I am convinced. You, you mentioned uh, Andrew Wakefield, and, and for some folks may not be familiar with him. He, he was the, the, the guy who wrote who, in Lancet in, in English. He did the, in England uh, a study of where he basically said uh, the um, what's the shot, the, the, the shots that little kids get for measles, mumps, and something, that, that it causes autism, which created this huge uproar. And people believed him in, until they proved that his research was flawed. Right. So, so, so Andrew Wakefield was a uh, British intestinal surgeon who, in 1998, published a paper in The Lancet, which is a well-respected general medical journal, claiming that the combination measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine caused autism. He never did a study. What he did was he published yeah. essentially a case series. So these were eight children who had recently received the vaccine that then, over a period of months, developed signs and symptoms consistent with autism, which proved only that MMR vaccine doesn't prevent autism. It only prevents measles, mumps, and rubella infection. Then subsequent to that, because it created such an uproar in England, I mean, thousands of parents chose not to vaccinate their children. Hundreds of children were hospitalized with measles and four died. I mean, you could argue that paper killed four children. So, so as in response, the academic and, and uh, medical community responded by doing studies. There were 18 studies done in seven countries on three continents looking at children who did or didn't get the MMR vaccine to show that you were at no greater risk of getting autism if you got the vaccine or if you didn't. Um, but it, it's hard to unring the bell. I think, you know, once you've scared people, it's hard to unscare them. And that sort of, uh, I think, set us back a little bit. Even though we'd eliminated measles from this country by the year 2000, it started to come back within a few years after the publication of that uh, that paper um, because we scared people. And it's it's hard to watch. It's yeah. really, it is, this measles is hard to watch. We have an outbreak recently in Philadelphia. And there's so much in medicine we don't know. There's so much we can't do. And to watch children once again suffer a disease that's preventable is heartbreaking. And that's not to, we're seeing measles outbreaks in recent years all over the country, right? I mean, this isn't just in one area. Exactly right. And, and I worry about this. I do think this is in many ways a consequence of the of, of COVID mandates, because now you have about 35% of American parents who say that that not only do they think COVID shouldn't have been mandated, they think that there shouldn't be school vaccine mandates, period. The CDC uh, published a paper last year in November showing that the immunization rates among kindergartners are starting to drop. And with that, you're seeing outbreaks of measles and measles should scare you. Measles can make you sick. Uh, you know, I'm of an age, I'm a child of the 1950s, so I, like everyone my age, uh, had measles. And before there was a measles vaccine, every year in this country, we'd have three to four million cases of measles. We'd have 48,000 hospitalizations and 500 deaths, typically from pneumonia or severe dehydration or encephalitis, which is uh, inflammation of the brain. Measles is also the most contagious infectious disease. I mean, it is far more contagious than COVID, far more contagious than influenza five times more contagious. You don't have to have direct contact with somebody with measles to get it. You just have to be in their airspace within two hours of them being there. I don't think people realize how hard it is to contain this virus. And that's why you're starting to see these outbreaks now. And uh, measles, we, uh, you, this is not a disease you want to relive. I, I uh, experienced the measles outbreak in Philadelphia in 1991, when during a few month period over the winter, we had 1400 cases of measles and nine deaths. It was a nightmare. I mean, we, people were scared to come into our city because of fear of measles. Mm. And I just see you're starting like in every horror film, you know, always in the first five minutes, you hear one of the actors say, 
Did you hear something? And I feel like that's what's happening here. You've been writing about the anti-vaccine movement for like 30 some odd years. What what are the reasons people refuse to get vaccinated? Is it the same throughout time when you look at, you know, going back to smallpox up to now? Is it is it similar or have things changed? Um, no, I think it's similar. I, I think in the sense that it's it's a, a fear, which is understandable. I mean, when when you what do we ask parents to do? We ask parents to give um, vaccines to prevent fourteen different diseases in the first few years of life, which can mean as many as uh, five shots at one time. It can mean as many as twenty five shots over the first uh, four to six years of life to prevent diseases that most people don't see, like polio or diphtheria, using biological fluids that most people don't understand. It's not hard to believe that there's a pushback, but a choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. And, and I think that's what we need to get people to understand is the relative risk. I mean, we had a case of polio in New York City a couple of years ago in a 27-year-old man who never left this country. Um, polio virus, specifically this so-called revertant virus that comes from the oral polio vaccine, that's around. I mean, when he gets polio, knowing that one of every 2,000 people are paralyzed by polio virus, you know that he's the tip of a much bigger iceberg. And when they looked at that uh, wastewater samples, both in his county, Rockland County, as well as surrounding counties, they found that virus. So it's a dangerous game we play when we choose not to get these vaccines. And I, I think it is, a, it is a challenge to get people to understand what's in these vaccines and why it is so important to protect our children. You write, if we are to increase vaccine rates during the next pandemic, we need to find people like Alice Stanford who are willing to go into communities where vaccination rates are low, such as Native Americans, the Amish, ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities, rurally communities, and black and brown communities, among others, and sit down in living rooms and answer questions and concerns. Tell us about Alice Stanford. She's a shining light in the book. Right. She's been one of the many bright lights in this pandemic. So Ayla Stanford is an African-American surgeon who's at Temple University. I think she's the first fully American-trained African-American surgeon uh, in the United States who, who when COVID hit, uh, took it upon herself to try and educate people in North Philadelphia about this disease. And so initially what she did was with her own money. She set up these, these clinics where people could test themselves. This is before we had um, either antivirals or monoclonal antibodies or vaccines to see who, who was infected and who was. And then when the vaccines came out, she had offered these vaccines free, obviously, and went to people's rooms. She sat in their living rooms and explained to them why it was important. So here in North Philadelphia, it's primarily a black and brown uh, community. So now they had people who look like her, sit, sit, who look like them, sitting in their, uh, in their living room explaining why it was important to get a vaccine. And she vaccinated 50,000 people in North Philadelphia. I mean, she's, a, she's an American hero. And I think it, we, need, we need thousands of Ayla Stanfords. Yeah. All right. So um, tell us a little bit about why incubation periods determine the effectiveness of a vaccine. This is another one right. of those. I didn't know that. <laughs> Right, so so incubation period is the time from when you're first exposed, in this case, to a virus, to when you develop symptoms. So so SARS-CoV-2, COVID, is a short incubation period disease, meaning within a, a few days, a couple of days, three days between being exposed to the virus and developing symptoms. So it's a short incubation period. The same thing's true with influenza. Same thing's true with respiratory syncytial virus. Same thing's true with common cold viruses. So protection against mild disease is mediated by antibodies present in the circulation, in the bloodstream at the time of exposure. But antibodies are relatively short-lived. So, so over 
three, four, six months, antibodies have faded. And antibodies protect you against mild illness. And because antibodies fade for a short incubation period disease, you know, those antibodies will be gone, so you'll get a mild illness. But you're still protected against severe illness because severe illness is mediated by memory cells, memory B cells, which make antibodies, or memory T cells, which kill virus-infected cells. Those are long-lived. Um, memory B cells, you know, are also long-lived, but it takes time to activate and differentiate those cells to become effector cells, like antibody-secreting cells or cells that kill virus-infected cells. So for short incubation period diseases, that's not enough time for the activation of those memory cells to protect against mild disease, but it is enough time for them to protect against severe disease because it takes seven days, 10 days, 14 days to develop severe disease. But take a disease like measles. Measles is a long incubation period disease. So it takes, you know, seven days, 10 days, 14 days really to get, th that's the incubation period. That's plenty of time for those memory cells to activate and protect you against even mild infection because those antibodies will then have plenty of time because the incubation period is, is so long to be made. Um, and so that's why you can eliminate diseases like that. We eliminated measles from this country by the year 2000. We've eliminated smallpox, another long incubation period disease. We've largely eliminated polio, another long incubation period disease. So incubation period determines your ability to eliminate a disease. But for these short incubation period diseases, like um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, we have to get used to the fact that when you're the goal of the vaccine is not to prevent mild disease over a long period of time. It's to prevent uh, severe disease. That's the only reasonable goal. And I think that that has, we haven't explained that well. And I'll give you one specific example if, if we have time. Yeah, absolutely. There was in, in, in uh, Provincetown, Massachusetts in July, 2021. So you're seven months into the availability of a vaccine. There was an, uh, uh, thousands of men get together, celebrate July 4th holiday, Provincetown, Massachusetts. 80% uh, of those men were vaccinated. Um, nonetheless, there's an outbreak of COVID. So 346 vaccinated men Fully vaccinated men get COVID. Four were hospitalized. So that's a hospitalization rate of 1.2%. That's great. That's a vaccine working well. The remaining 342 had mild or asymptomatic infection. When the CDC reported that outbreak in a journal they published called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the phrase that they used to describe those people who had asymptomatic or mild infection was breakthrough infection. Wrong word. Mm -hmm. Breakthrough implies failure. That wasn't a failure. That was a vaccine doing exactly what you wanted it to do, which is to protect you against against uh, severe disease. In fact, Brett Kavanaugh, you know, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, was routinely screened as he walked into Supreme Court chambers and was found to have an asymptomatic infection, which was described by the media as a breakthrough infection. I mean, you should have watched that with the way that was handled on, on the media. It was like the man was fighting for his life. He had an asymptomatic infection. He won. That's yeah. what you want to have. With these vaccines, and I don't think we explained that well. I, I think yeah. people thought that I got the vaccine; they told me to get the vaccine, and now I've had a mild breakthrough infection. CDC lied to me. Yeah, I, that's such a good point because you're right. It's the terminology and the way it's communicated. Because you hear that a lot after vaccines. Anybody who got it's like, "Oh, it didn't work." I'm like, "Yes, no, it worked. You're alive, and you're not in the hospital." That's the whole point, right? So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right there. We're talking about COVID-19. We're talking with Dr. Paul Offit, who's the one of the world's top virologists. His book is Tell Me When It's Over, an expert's guide to deciphering COVID myths and navigating our post-pandemic world. 866-999-4626 is our number. Our email address, thepoint at capeandislands.org. We'll have more after a quick break. 
You're listening to The Point. We are talking with Dr. Paul Offit, one of the world's top virologists. He's a national and international authority on COVID-19, a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, and author of Tell Me When It's Over, an expert's guide to deciphering COVID myths and navigating our post-pandemic world. 866-999-4626 is our number. If you'd like to join the conversation, that's 866-999-4626. Our email address, thepoint at capeandislands.org. There's been much debate over constitutional rights and mandates, and this is not the first time that this has been challenged and not the first time cases have actually gone to the Supreme Court. I thought that was a fascinating part of the book. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So um, there was an outbreak of smallpox in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the uh, Cambridge Public Health um, Group uh, said that you had to be vaccinated. You had to get a smallpox vaccine or you would face a $5 fine, which was a lot of money back then. I was like the equivalent of about $150 today. Um, so so one person opposed that. He, he said that he wasn't going to get the vaccine. He was a man named Henning Jacobson. He was a Lutheran minister in, in Boston and he wasn't going to pay the $5 fine. So that went to a local court. Then it went to the state Supreme Court. Then it went to the United States Supreme Court where the question was, was that his right? In other words, did the Constitution essentially allow him to choose not to get a vaccine? And, and even though this was um, very early on, and there's nothing obviously in the Constitution that says anything specifically about vaccines, basically the, the, the Justice uh, uh, John uh, Marshall Harlan uh, took the position that, that there are manifest restraints for the common good. Um, for example, we have stop signs, we have uh, car seats, I mean, we have uh, seatbelts, we have a number of things that we do for, for our good and for the common good that are mandated and um, that, that vaccines fell under that category. There was a, uh, that revisited the Supreme Court about 17 year, years later in 1922, when a high school student named Rosalind Zucht um, uh, chose not to get a, again, a smallpox vaccine to go to school. Uh, there wasn't an outbreak then, uh, but again, it would reaffirm uh, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, which, which really was, was when this issue came up about the validity of mandates, the ability to have state or local or federal mandates. Again, the, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court went back to Jacobson v. Massachusetts, probably one of the most important public health decisions in our history. And then there was also uh, a case in Texarkana on the border of Texas and Arkansas. Tell us about that. Right. So there was in the 70s, there was an outbreak of measles in Texarkana, a city that that borders, that straddles the border between Texas and Arkansas. So Texas enforced a, a, didn't enforce a vaccine mandate, whereas Arkansas did. And you could see that there was a dramatic decrease in cases uh, on the Arkansas side where they enforced a school vaccine mandate, but not on the Texas side. So it was probably, there was no more definitive proof of the importance of school mandates than that. And I do worry right now that that in the wake of, of COVID mandates and with now a weakening of school vaccine mandates, that what we're seeing is exactly what you would expect to see because the first virus to come back, the canary in the coal mine is measles. And when you're starting to see these measles outbreaks, that's because we're having an erosion in school mandates and, and a decrease in the immunization rates in kindergartners. And I really worry about this because measles is one bad disease. I mean, we, we, you know, we experienced one in Philadelphia, a recent outbreak in Philadelphia, and we're bringing measles cases into the hospital and that's not where you want measles to be. There's yeah. a lot of immune compromised people in hospitals and much more so than say 30 years ago, because we're better 
at immune compromising people. And I really worry about what's going on now. And I think going back to measles, uh, it's a good point because, you know, I'm, I'm of, I think you're same age. I had measles as well and we survived it. But I think people go, well, I, I had measles and I survived it. So why should I, you know, get a measles vaccine for my child? But you forget kids do die from this. And as you say, and as somebody who's, who's immune, you know, it's compromised. I mean, the consequences are much more dire than I think people think would happen. No, you're right. I remember I had to give a talk once in Jacksonville, Florida, and there was there were some some folks who questioned vaccines that were in the audience, and we were talking about measles. And I was talking about how you know measles can certainly make you sick or worse. And uh, one of the people stood up in the back of the room and he said, you know, I had measles. I'm fine. Everybody sitting it was an older crowd. Everybody sitting around me also had measles and they're fine. And and I said, yeah, but who's not in the room? Right. The people who aren't in the room are the 500 people who died every year. From measles. Yeah. I mean, they're not here to tell their stories. I'm here to tell their stories. Talk a little bit about the history of vaccine exemptions. This is interesting. And we, we talked about religious exemptions, but there were other exemptions that I didn't realize. I only, always thought that was just a medical or a religious exemption. So tell us a little bit about that. Right. So the first were, were religious exemptions, um, which which uh, the, 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 the crack in the wall started actually in New York State with associated with the polio vaccine. Um, it was Christian scientists, actually, who stepped forward and said, look, our religion says that we shouldn't be vaccinated. And so um, that started then the first religious exemption, which spread across the country. Um, and so almost all states have religious exemptions. And then what followed from that were so-called philosophical exemptions, uh, where basically the ruling was, well, if you if your philosophy is such that it's held with the same strength or vigor as a religious exemption, then that's the same thing. I, it never made sense to me. I mean, your, your earlier emailer who said religious exemptions don't make sense, they don't, because I think it's a particularly unreligious thing to do. And philosophical, really? I mean, Philo, love, sophos, wisdom. Where's the wisdom that says it shouldn't get a vaccine? You shouldn't get a vaccine. And all the other term that uses personal belief exemptions. This is vaccines aren't a belief system. I mean, they're an evidence-based system. Um, they work, and for the most part, they're 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 safe. They're not absolutely safe, but they're they're certainly uh, safe. And in, in terms of relative risk, you're you're at much greater risk if you acquire your immunity from natural infection than if you acquire it from vaccination, because that's the whole point of vaccines. The point of vaccines is to induce the immunity that's caused by natural infection without having to pay the price of natural infection. Yeah. Um, so we have an email from Elaine who says, is the COVID virus becoming less virulent and can you imagine a time when it will no longer be a threat to people's lives, even for immune compromised people? So anything's possible. It certainly could evolve to become less and less virulent. That hasn't happened yet. I think when Omicron came into this country, the hope was that it may be less virulent. It was certainly more immune invasive. But the, the, the hope was when you looked early on that it might have looked like it was less virulent, but the only reason that it was less likely to cause hospitalization was because we had a much higher level of population immunity at that time. But, but studies that have been looking at people who'd never been vaccinated, never been naturally infected, and then compared the virulence of alpha, delta, Omicron, or now the Omicron subvariants, these really have not become less virulent. It would be great if they could eventually evolve to be just something like the common cold virus, and that might happen but there's no evidence for that yet. Mm. All right. Tell us a little bit more about long COVID. Um, some folks have COVID for quite a while. Right. I think long COVID is more than one thing. It certainly is real. I mean, there are people who suffer long COVID for months or longer. And this was also true actually with SARS-1, that first uh, 
coronavirus that appeared in 2002, and it was true with MERS too, the second coronavirus that appeared in 2012. And it's true for some other viruses too, like influenza or Epstein-Barr virus, which is the cause of mono, hepatitis B virus. So there are other viruses that can cause similar things, but I think it is more than one thing. I think for some people it is sort of a dysregulated or kind of overactive immune system, which persists. And for some people it's that the virus may continue to reproduce itself. I think for some people it's that there are these small blood clots that form in the lungs or other sites. And for some people, I think it's that they've suffered you know, a prolonged and difficult illness and then the psychological trauma that comes with that. And, and so I think we need to sort out which of the different uh, root causes are, are associated with uh, someone's long COVID to be able to figure out how to best treat it. So if somebody has long COVID, do they remain contagious through that time or or no? Unlikely. I, I think for the most part, um, you're, you're, you're contagious when you're shedding virus, which is really in the first sort of five to seven days of illness. And then as your immune system takes over, sort of virus reproduction dramatically decreases. And so you become much, much, much less contagious. So I think the answer is no. Yeah. So um, we've seen a number, as you mentioned, of different variants, and we expect that to continue. So are we going to need a, a yearly vaccine? Um, I think what makes sense is what most countries do. The, the goal of this vaccine is to keep people out of the hospital, keep them out of the intensive care unit, and keep them out of the morgue. That's the goal of this vaccine. So the question then becomes, who's getting hospitalized? Who's dying from this virus? And for the most part, that falls into several high-risk groups. People who Dr. Walensky, when she was head of the CDC, referred to as the elderly elderly, meaning people over 75, or in UK's definition, people over 80, people who, have, who are immune compromised, People who have high-risk medical conditions like chronic or long-term heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, obesity, and pregnant people. I think those are the groups most likely to be hospitalized, most likely to go to the ICU, and most likely to die. So most countries say, let's target those high-risk groups. In our country, what we've done is we, we've basically likened it to the flu vaccine. We say, let's get everybody over six months of age to get a yearly vaccine. But I think what makes more sense, at least for regarding uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID, is to target those high-risk groups. Let's talk to Jay, who's giving us a call from Marston's Mills. Hi, Jay. Hi, good morning. Love your show. I'm tuning in a little bit late, and my question very quickly is, um, in family discussions, there's always somebody that brings up that, um, you know, this vaccine, Dr. So-and-so says it's not good, that kind of thing. My question is, can, the, can you call or can your uh, guest please discuss the scientific method and how that has shown time and time again that these vaccines are safe and effective and have been so for many, many years. And uh, thank you very much. I'll take your call off air. Thanks, or your answer off air. Well, thank you so much for that question. And, and that's really exactly at the heart of it. I mean, how do you prove whether or not a particular claim is true? Um, so I happen to be in Florida right now. Um, there is uh, a, a state surgeon general named Joseph Ladapa who claims that there are sort of DNA fragments in, in, the, in these RNA, mRNA vaccines, which are inserting themselves into our DNA, which is then causing us to have cancer and autoimmune disease. And it's just utter nonsense. And so, so, so how, do you, how do you prove that? How do you prove whether or not he's right? So what you can do is you can look at people then, retrospectively, who've gotten these mRNA vaccines and compare them to people who didn't get the vaccines and, and, try and, and, and control for all other things. Control for socioeconomic background, con con control for healthcare seeking behavior, control for medical background, so that you can isolate that one variable. 
which in this case would be receipt of mRNA vaccines, to see whether or not you are at increased risk of cancer. And, and to, if you do those studies, you would find that you aren't at increased risk of cancer. But that's the scientific method. It's a logical method. So for example, when Andrew Wakefield publishes his paper showing a collection of eight children who develop autism within uh, months of receiving a vaccine, he might as well have published a paper showing eight children who developed autism within a month of, of eating a peanut butter sandwich. I mean, there's no there's no logic to that kind of study. It's not a study. It's a case series. The only way to study it is to do what we just said regarding uh, the COVID vaccines is look at children who did or didn't get that, look at large numbers of the, that vaccine, and look to see whether there was any difference in, in the case, this case, autism rates. And when those studies were done, using the scientific method, as you mentioned, you could see that MMR vaccine didn't cause autism. And that's that should be enormously reassuring to people, that there is a method by which these questions can be answered. I mean, you're not asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pen here. That's a religious question. These are scientific questions that can be answered in a scientific venue. Yeah. Go back to, to, to uh, Andrew Wakefield. Eight cases. That doesn't seem like a lot of cases to base all this on. Eight? I think the most remarkable aspect of that case series was that it was ever published. I, I think it was just a disservice to everyone in the medical community that a journal as well-respected as Lancet was able to, willing to publish something that thin. Yeah. So no one likes getting a shot, but needle phobia is a thing. It affects 25% of adults. I, that was another surprise in the book I didn't know. Um and so, so going forward, and, and that would, I could see where people would be hesitant to go get a vaccine because they're afraid of the needle. So what do we do about that? Yeah, we, we don't recognize that. I think Rachel Maddow on her show um, was willing to say that she was needle phobic and that it's not a trivial thing. There are some people that are so needle phobic that when they get a needle, they they faint. And so it's hard for them then to especially go in public, which is the way we were initially inoculating people in this country in 2021, where we were doing it in large clinical settings where you might have gotten your shot in front of other people. That's how I got my shot in an auditorium at Children's Hospital mm -hmm. Philadelphia. Uh, what other countries are more willing to recognize this and they're willing to take you into a room by yourself, you know, with an aquarium or something coming and to try and, and help you through this um, because it is the thing. I, they, the estimates were that there were many people who didn't get a COVID vaccine for that reason, that they were scared of shots. And we need to recognize that more needle phobia is a real thing. Yeah. And another thing, mandates, they're either local or state. They're not federal, right? When we're talking about vaccine mandates, these are coming from, from local governments or state. That's right. The, yeah. the federal government, uh, arguably, uh, the military, you could argue, is, is more of a federal mandate, but but certainly uh, mandates, as we understand them, um, if you're assuming you're not in the military, is a um, state or local thing. Yeah. So going forward, I guess we now look at colds and flu symptoms differently, right? Because uh, we may have a cold or we may not. So what are your thoughts on, as we're you know dealing with COVID for certainly years to come, I would think, right? We don't, we don't really know what, we don't have a crystal ball, but it would seem that we're going to have these different variants. What do we need to be aware of when, when we have a, have cold symptoms or somebody in the family has cold symptoms? Do we treat it differently than we used to? Here's what I would say. If you have respiratory symptoms, congestion, cough, runny nose, sore throat, headache, muscle pain, um, a respiratory, likely respiratory virus, if you're in a high risk group, the high-risk groups we talked about before who are most likely because of those risks to be hospitalized or die from COVID, you should test yourself. If you're positive, you should take Paxlovid early. Um, if you're not in a high-risk group and you have those symptoms, um, I think you should assume that you have either COVID 
or, or respiratory syncytial virus or influenza virus, all of which can cause people to be hospitalized and all of which can cause people to die. So if you have respiratory symptoms, stay home if you can. If you can't stay home, wear a mask. Um, I think that's the thing we suffer from most at some level is presenteeism. People are perfectly willing to go out and, and finding that they say COVID negative, say, okay, good, I'm good. I'm not going to hurt other people. But RSV causes hundreds of thousands of, of hospitalizations and tens of thousands of deaths every year. Influenza causes hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations and tens of thousands of deaths every year. Somehow we've grandfathered those viruses in. But I think that, uh, that, that if you're not in a high-risk group, at the least have the courtesy of staying home if you're sick or if you can't stay home for work reasons or whatever, wear a mask. And t testing, sometimes I, I mentioned to you, I, a couple of weeks ago, got COVID and I, I woke up on a Monday morning thinking I had a bad cold. I tested negative. Um, luckily, I did stay home that day. And then it wasn't until Tuesday morning that I tested positive. So sometimes you don't test positive right away, even though you have symptoms. Right. And again, I mean, if, if you're not in a high risk group, any of the viruses that you can have, not just RSV and influenza, but human metanumavirus, there's four strains of human coronavirus, there's a prior influenza viruses, all these viruses can, can, can cause harm. Just because you don't have COVID doesn't mean that you can't harm other people. So at least um, stay home if you can and, and wear a mask uh, if, you, if, you, if you have to go out. It, it's just fair. Yeah. Dr. Paul Offit is one of the world's top virologists. He's a national and international authority on COVID-19, a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. His book is Tell Me When It's Over, an expert's guide to deciphering COVID myths and navigating our post-pandemic world. We'll have a link with more information to the book at our website, capeandislands.org. Dr. Offit, thanks so much for being with us and for writing the book. Really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. It was my pleasure. I'm Indy Todd. Thanks for listening. Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Jenny Junker and Dan Tridel. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. 